If you're ready for freedom from the grind, then passive income from real estate investing is the best way to get you there. If you don't know where to start or what to do next, then the Rent Roll Radio Show is the best place to get you there. Join us while we discuss the best practices, strategies, and mindset you'll need and give you actionable content to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we are joined with a really cool guest. He happens to be the author of a book that I'm in the middle of reading and has another book that I am looking forward to reading as soon as I finish this one, which was just released. He is seemingly the uh, the it boy on the conference circle. You know, when you buy a car and then you see the car everywhere, well, I met Rob at, at the Multifamily uh, Investor Nation conference. He was on stage there giving some some great wisdom. And then it seems like since then, I've just seen him everywhere. So I, I reached out and begged him to come join us. Rob Beersley, welcome to the show. And thank you so much for joining us. Yep. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Rob, can you kind of introduce yourself to the listeners? Tell us a little bit about your past and kind of how you got into real estate and just what your story is and what you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm the founder of Lone Star Capital, which is a almost five-year-old multifamily investment firm. We're vertically integrated uh, with operations focused in Texas. Uh, we acquire and value add workforce housing, um, primarily in Houston. And prior to forming Lone Star, I actually was, uh, I, I grew up in Silicon Valley within a real estate family. My parents were on the residential side of things. So they were brokers uh, buying and selling luxury homes for their clients. And they did some fix and flips and some development on the side. The thing about that was they never were owning assets. They were flipping assets and or they were, or they were making commissions. And that didn't really resonate with me. Uh, and so when I finally you know, discovered multifamily, which is while in college, uh, I was really much more attracted to the multifamily business than the single family business. So I kind of went back to my parents and said, Hey, this multifamily thing, this is really cool. We should definitely get involved. And they supported me absolutely in this new venture. Uh, but they were just too busy with their main business on the brokerage side of things. So fortunately, I was able to branch out. I joined a mentorship group. I met my business partner through that group. Uh, at a conference, actually, like you said, the so conferences are are definitely a great thing. And we we formed Lone Star together, and we, uh, you know, uh, the rest is history. We we've been off to the races. We've acquired over three hundred and fifty million in deals over the last uh, four years or so. And uh, yeah, that's what brings us here today. Awesome. Awesome. So there's a, a, a ton to unpack from that story. I got a million questions. Uh, first of all, how old are you? You look pretty young. I'm to... <laughs> yeah, 25. That's awesome. So you're a 25 year old who has, has led the acquisition of $350 million in real estate. So you started when you were 20 years old. That's right. That's right. Do you mind if I ask what conference that was that you met your partner at? Yeah, it was the best ever conference. That's awesome. I love hearing that. I, I'm I'm Joe's biggest fan. Um, I go every year, and and I've heard that story. I've heard so many stories that started the exact same way. Um, who is your partner? His name's Ken Petrakovsky. He was formerly a tax attorney at MetLife. Uh, he had some friends who were in the real estate business, and he kind of had an eye towards moving into something more entrepreneurial. And, uh, you know, our partnership has just been perfect because 
kind of were able to lean on each other in the early times to give each other the confidence to, for him, it was to leave his job, right? It's hard. I don't, I don't have personal experience in this, but I can imagine how difficult it is to leave a high paying job when you have a family and you have kids and everything. And then for me, it gave me the confidence to, to drop out of school after two years, you know, I was studying for my computer science degree, thinking I'm going to go into tech. And then, you know, between the two of us, we took that leap and, uh, you know, went full time into multifamily building our business. That's awesome, man. That's, that's such a great story. Who was your mastermind? Who would put Matt, what, what uh, coaching program mastermind? Was that Joe as well? Yeah, we met through Joe. Awesome. I've, I've interviewed, I think every single one of Joe's students and they're, they're all overwhelming success stories. <laughs> like, uh, Dan went through his program. Chris Solero went through his program. Uh, Ellie went through his program. Uh, everybody I've ever, and that's like, you know, when we, when I first got into to real estate and, and interviewing people, it was always kind of like that, that bigger pockets mentality it was like, avoid the gurus, avoid paying for information. And so like early on, I'm like, what's, well, you can get it all on the internet. So why would you pay for this information? And after interviewing like so many people that have been wildly successful from paying for those coaching programs, I, I've completely flip-flopped on the subject. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, the worries about it are true because it can be a, a scammy business, the information marketing business, information sales. Uh, so there are, but, but the reason why it is such a big business is because the opportunity is so big. And if you do find yourself in the right group with the right information and the right people, it is an incredible shortcut. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about the vertical integration because Joe doesn't follow a vertical integration model. Is that, or, or at one point he didn't, I, I recall him being very strong willed about not being involved in property management. And, and I don't recall him ever talking about being involved in the construction piece either. So he, he held off on vertically integrating for a long time. And he uh, finally did after he got to almost 10,000 units, whereas we vertically integrated at around a thousand units. So it's a, definitely a, a different journey. Uh, but I think, you know, his going in-house on the management side and construction side, uh, eventually definitely speaks to the value of it. Um, so we, we recognize the value of it and we really pushed ourselves to make it happen sooner rather than later. And now if you, if Joe looks back, I'm sure he would tell you this, that he and his team regret not vertically integrating sooner because on the one hand, when you have more units, it's easier to integrate from a scale perspective because you already have all these properties. You're going to have all this property management revenue coming in so you can afford to hire the infrastructure required to really build out a, a property management business. But at the same time, you have this huge transition headache of having to go from 10,000 units being third-party managed to all in-house in your systems. And there's just a lot more that could go wrong. Uh, whereas for us, we we did it kind of too early back when the re property management revenue that our properties were throwing off was was kind of honestly too small to really support a management company but we did so because you know we wanted to play the long game and think long term and and we just were so eager to to get this thing done we didn't mind losing money on the property management side to just grow our vision so that's exactly what we did and because we were only bringing over i forget maybe it was around five properties it was a very seamless transition. And now we're able to kind of move forward from here and scale up the infrastructure 
in line with, with as the the portfolio scales. Awesome. And what does that look like logistically? I mean, do you so do you, would you say you recommend you would recommend doing it in past a thousand units, or you you're glad you did it when you did? So it's less about units and more about. Revenue. More about revenue. Yeah. So right, if your average rents are $4,000, then you could seemingly vertically much uh, easier at a lower unit count. Whereas if your rents are $500, then you need a lot of units. So a property management company at the very, very bare minimum can break even somewhere around $300,000 uh, in, in expenses. So you need roughly $300,000 in property management fee revenue. Uh, so you'd have to take that and assuming you have a 3% property management fee on your properties like we do, you would just take 300,000 divided by 3%. And that would be the, how much portfolio revenue support your properties would have to, to produce. Yeah. And, and you, when I saw you speak in uh, Charlotte, you were speaking about uh, dealing with institutional money. So you, you like, you know, the family offices, the bigger institutional dollars, and I've heard they prefer vertical integration. They want to deal with a shop that kind of they can oversee and can, you know, every step of the, the process is that, have you found working with the, the larger capital partners that that vertical integration has been a great selling point for you, for your organization? Absolutely. And that was a big reason why we wanted to get there uh, because we started having conversations early on with larger equity partners, more sophisticated equity partners, and that would always come up. And that was always a sticking point. And something that, like you said, they they really want to see. So we we knew that's what we wanted to do, and and now it is a selling point for us, and we can share more about our operations, and that does get uh, more sophisticated and larger investors excited and more willing to work with us. So take me back to like the early days, because it's you know it's it's easy to look like you got your shit together when you got it three hundred fifty million. In, in assets and you're vertically integrated and you're, you know, but what about in the beginning? I mean, was there like your first deal? Was there a lot of insecurities going into that? Am I going to get the money? How do I get the good deal from the broker? Walk me through that whole process of like breaking out. Yeah. Well, as everyone says, the first deal is definitely the hardest. So the first deal was really tough. The second deal was really tough. And those deals really, taught us a ton and provided a ton of experience because when you go in, there's so much that you don't know. Right. And unfortunately we had to learn those lessons on the job, right. On the fly, while under contract, while the time is ticking, while there's stress and uh, lots of money on the line, because most of those lessons can be learned actually prior to even going under contract. For example, uh, getting a loan co-signer is critical for your first deal because it's very unlikely that a lender will actually give you the loan you're looking for uh, without having the required net worth, liquidity, and experience. So we kind of knew about that issue, but we didn't take it seriously. We figured, hey, we'll kind of figure it out, or maybe we'll find a lender that'll make an exception. But in the end, that didn't work out, and that wasn't the right way to go about it. And in the end, we had to scramble to figure out that solution. And when you scramble, you're not going to get the best outcome. So something like that is something you can kind of prepare for ahead of time, which looking back, we totally should have done. So, but those are kind of some of the things that we, we learned going into the first couple of deals. But by far the biggest thing we learned and, and, and just getting 
uh, killed by was just raising capital. So difficult to raise capital. We really underestimated how difficult it was because we just figured, well, if we find a good deal, the money will come, the money will take care of itself, no big deal. And that's just absolutely not true. As you get further along in the business, you realize that you really need to be focusing on raising capital full-time. Uh, someone on your team needs to be full-time focusing on that pretty much. And that was something that neither my business partner nor I were interested in at all. We both were deal guys, real estate guys. We wanted to be involved on that side of things. Not necessarily, neither of us necessarily went into it with a passion or idea of uh, marketing and sales, which is essentially what raising capital is, a very high level form of it. So that was the eye opener. Those couple first couple deals, that was the big eye opener. And from then on, we completely shifted our mindset and strategy because I used to actually, I can't even believe this, but when I first started out, I looked at marketing as scammy and sleazy. I looked at sales as sleazy. I had that mindset and I, I've, you know, definitely flipped that around and, and bought into thought leadership where we're writing articles all the time. We're posting on social media all the time. Like we talked about, I published my second book. Uh, all those things have radically transformed our network and our access to capital. So that that's awesome. Um, I want to hear more about that, but on the, on the, the topic of, uh, and I've, I've covered this topic a million times, but on the topic of thinking that sales and marketing is sleazy, I just want to share my, my experience with that topic. So when I went back in my, my early corporate career days, I was a salesperson. I was always a salesperson and, and I, I was a terrible salesperson and a, a friend of mine, and I hated being a salesperson. Cause like you said, you ever seen that movie Groundhog's day where the insurance salesman every day runs up, you're probably too young for that, but he runs up trying to bug the main character to sell him insurance and he's just this sleazy and that's what i had in my mind like and i sold insurance out of college and that's how i felt and i mean it gave me stomach aches trying to call and sell stuff to people and I, I just i always had this that mentality about it and when i first started with the first sales job of my corporate career um, my buddy had me read this book by zig ziglar and the first it was called the secrets of closing the sale and the first chapter of the book was about changing your mindset about what it is to be a salesperson and how much value you actually bring to people. I always use the example of life insurance. So like I have two kids and a wife that doesn't work. I have a three-year-old, a two-year-old and a, a wife that doesn't work. And, and like, God knows how much debt, right? <laughs> With the properties. And so like, I need life insurance. Like I'm, I need life insurance probably more than anybody, right? I'm like the prime candidate for it. I would have never in my life gone out and bought life insurance. My buddy that sells life insurance had to hound the shit out of me to get me to buy the life insurance I had. And he had to twist my arm and thank God he did because he pushed me into doing the right thing that I was too busy or too lazy, you know, to do. And a lot of what we do here with this thought leadership is we, we empower people to take control of their retirement. We empower them to get cash flow, to have a safety net in case they get laid off from their job. We, we empower them to not depend on the government for, you know, whatever. So like we're, we're doing a, we're doing a really solid service here, helping investors. And, and, you know, and, and then also the other mindset shift I saw around the, 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 the raising capitals, like investors are lined up, like they want these returns. Like we're doing them a favor just as much as they're doing us a favor investing in our deals. So like a lot of people that bring the subject up around raising capital, like, well, I don't feel comfortable begging people for money. Well, if you're doing good deals that are giving them solid returns, they should be begging you to take their money, you know? Um, 
So that, that's my little antidote on the subject. But so, so how did that go in the early days? Cause like, like I said, now I see you everywhere, but, but I didn't see you everywhere four years ago and you were raising tens of millions of dollars back then. So how were you doing it? How were you guys, what was the strategy then? Yeah, it's similar to the strategy today, which is just being willing and interested in raising money from anywhere. And that's been a a big focus of ours, which is having diversity in investors. We don't have one avatar and that's our exact investor that we target, right? We're not just going after doctors or dentists or entrepreneurs uh, for better or worse. I mean, obviously I think if you're starting out, I think niching down and being focused is definitely better than being broad, but that's just the way we've approached things. And we've, like we discussed earlier, we've had success with partnering with larger capital partners like family offices and uh, private equity firms. And we've also raised retail capital from our investor base. So, but I think like everyone else, we started out raising just family and friends money. And so number one, I was really lucky to have a built-in strong network from uh, my, my family's good reputation back home with uh, all the clients they've served over the years in their real estate business. So that was a no brainer. All of a sudden, Hey, it's not a cold intro. It's like, Hey, my son wants to talk to you about this real estate opportunity. Okay, sure. You've done well for me in real estate. Let, let's have a meeting. Right? So those, those were much easier openings. Not to say we raised a ton of money back then from that angle, but it was at least a good opening. Right. And then similarly, my business partner, a decent network here in New York, uh, with, with, with his, you know, just his professional network. So that was the starting point, but we quickly exhausted that and needed to, to really branch out and grow. And that was, that was what we, it was exactly what we did. And so we were willing to partner with people. We were willing to share more of the pie and not be greedy. That's always been a big thing for us is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to, not use this quote later, but for now I'll use it right now, which is I'd rather have a small piece of a bigger pie than hundred percent of a small pie, right? We're trying to grow something big. So we've always been looking at the bigger picture and just been more motiv motivated to get deals done and build relationships for the long term. And I think that is actually a huge advantage. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Alex Ramosi, uh, who puts out good content on YouTube, business content and life content. And, and he talks about whoever has the longest outlook and view has a competitive advantage. So for me, being so young, I look at things and I'm willing to make investments into things that may not pay off for 5, 10, 20 years because in 20 years, I'll be 45, right? Yeah. So yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a no brainer to be building these relationships because these relationships and whatever else I'm investing in is going to pay off for decades. That's awesome. And I, I, I agree with you. And I hear it all of the time. And I hear it from older folks that are talking about look, looking at my projects and they're like, man, like if I was your age, I'd be doing that too. But I don't, I don't have the time horizon. And I love that that subject about that Alex was talking about because it was it was the longer you can go without like collecting a dollar, right? So like if you can wait for a year for your strategy to pay off, then you'll do fine. If you can wait for ten years, and you'll never have to work again. You know, it's a, a Brandon Turner told me something similar. He's like the longer. The longer you can go without the ass, the longer you can go without cashing in, the bigger the cash in can be, right? If you go to social media and, and you know, and try and sell from Jump Street, you know what I mean? You you could cash in a little bit. But if you just add nothing but value, like he did with Bigger Pocket, you know, he didn't try and raise a penny from the public for a decade. 
And now when he goes to do it, you know what I mean? It just pours in versus if he would have started that, you know, from jump, it might, it wouldn't have built up like it did, you know? Very so impressive and a very good point. So what is your, uh, what is your investment strategy? So are you, are you guys doing the, the typical like five year, uh, turnaround, like private equity type play, or I've, I've heard some other interesting strategies where people are going for longer holds these days. What do y'all's, what do your typical deals look like? I'd say our typical deals are more on the shorter term hold rather than the longer term hold strategy. So most of the deals we're underwriting to a three-year hold and we'd like to have flexible debt that allows us to exit early, whether we want to refinance or sell in two to three years. That's definitely the sweet spot. And a lot of people are underwriting five-year time horizons, but if they can exit earlier, they they usually will. And you're seeing, we've been seeing a lot of that because the market was strong. And now we're going to go into a, a market that is going to go down. It's going to go sideways. We'll see where things shake out. But now it will likely be a market where quick flips and the get rich quick deals are not going to be as readily available. And it's going to go back to being kind of a slow long-term game, which is totally fine. But I think we're, we're an opportunistic seller. So we're looking to create value at the property and then seek to monetize that value creation through a refire sale. And there's, you know, not too much of a compelling reason for us to hold much longer than we need to in that regard, especially when you're talking about a private equity structure where we are sitting, you know, our compensation is sitting behind a preferred return uh, that we need to pay our investors. So our investors need to get their return first. And then after we get them all their capital back and their return, then we can start participating in the upside with them. So for us, and this is just the classic private equity incentive to sell sooner so you can start dipping into your uh, performance Promote, compensation. Yeah, exactly. So are you changing up your strategy? That was kind of perfect transition into my next line of questioning. So, I mean, obviously the market is going crazy. The interest rates are going crazy. The value days on market are longer though. You know, we're, we're even seeing some softening in the leasing in some of our assets. So like um, you had mentioned before you, you were getting debt that allowed you to like exit quickly. Right. So that that's like bridge debt, I'm assuming with no prepayment. And, but now, now we need to like kind of buckle down, right? Cause we might need to hold longer. And so I know a lot of the debt options, it's kind of like, well, what do you want? Do you want something long and stable with the prepayment that's going to allow you to wait, sit it out, wait it out? Or do you want something short with the prepayment that you can hurry up and get out of? So are you like, are you switching up the kind of debt you're getting? And are you switching up the type of assets you're go, going after and the business model you're doing going into this crazy world we're we're heading into or already in? Yeah, over the last six months, which has been most of 2022, we shifted to bank debt at a lower leverage uh, and a lower rate than than kind of the typical high leverage bridge loan. Uh, for example, right now we're closing a deal with a seven-year bank loan, which is very attractive because we have the seven years of term to provide that flexibility and ability to hold long-term if we need to. But also, if we want to exit in after three years, we can for a 1% prepayment penalty. So it does give us the flexibility and best of both worlds. And then on the leverage side, that deals around 60% leverage, uh, which is a lot different than what we used to be borrowing, which I think is really good and conservative, especially given 
today's circumstances. So I feel very comfortable, uh, you know, doing more modest leverage like that and then having the flexibility to maybe refi sooner or to hold longer if we need to. So switching gears again, I, 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 I know why you wrote the books, but I want to, I want to dive deep a little bit into that, into your marketing strategy. And because, um, one thing that I noticed with, you know, with Joe, with Dan, with, with you writing, like, this is not a typical book that one of my, th this book, the definitive guide to underwriting multifamily acquisitions. I a hundred percent guarantee you not a single one of my passive investors would read this book. Right. So like, would it, but, but it, ultimately at the end of the day, you wrote the book to get passive investors. Explain that strategy to me and, and, and the, and what I think, and I'll tell you what I think it is before you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Cause I talked to Dan about this and, and because those guys don't really sell coaching, you know, they don't sell a whole lot. Their, their typical thought leadership platform is based off of attracting, you know, passive investors. But a lot of times the guys they attract are like me. And so who's an active syndicator, you know, so is the thought process that, so many people show up to be active syndicators and realize how much work it is and how hard it is to get a deal and how hard it is. And they go, Oh, screw it. And they just go ahead and invest in your deal. Is that there's definitely a lot of that? Yes. And there's a lot of people who want to take on the entire business. And then they realize actually their focus and their strong suits is more related to raising capital. And then those become good partners of ours. Uh, that we can let them focus on raising capital. They can let us focus on finding the deals and running the operations and providing good transparent reporting and communications and everything. And that's a really good partnership. So, but I did, I did write the, the first book, the definitive guide to underwriting multifamily to one, to fill a gap in the market because there was no book out there that was just straightforward step-by-step -step guide. You're right. You're a hundred percent right. And, and in fact, I had one of my partners reach out to me a few months ago and say, because, and, and, and I say none of my passive investors read this. I'm sure some of your passive investors read this, right? Like it's a short yes. book. It's a hundred pages. Like anybody who's investing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of their own capital should have a, they should have a baseline understanding of what they're investing in. And a, and a quick hundred page read could give you a good baseline. But my, one of my partners on one of our projects reached out and he goes, man, I know you're always interviewing authors and, and reviewing books. Do you have a book? that just breaks down underwriting quickly, you know, that I can give to some of my passive investors that are looking to deploy a ton of money, but want to understand it better. And the answer was, no, I don't really have anything. And then fast forward two months, I had a call with him on an asset that we we partnered on last week. And I said, Hey, remember that question you asked me last week? I was like, I got your answer. It's right here. And he went and ordered your book too. So there's, that's my endorsement. Very cool. I appreciate that. Yeah, so it was definitely filling a void in the market. And there was a part of me that wanted past investors to read a book like this. And I want them to understand the numbers more because I enjoy working with sophisticated investors who I can have conversations about the numbers and in detail and whatnot. And that's that kind of goes to the fact that we've enjoyed partnering with institutional investors that know more than us, right? And are teaching us. And that I really enjoy. So it this sort of marketing and positioning puts us in a category where we are attracting more sophisticated investors, which is good and bad because more sophisticated investors aren't going to pay you a 3% acquisition fee and close their eyes and just trust you on, on the numbers, right? They, they're going to keep you honest 
as far as the quality of the deal and the deal structure to make sure it's fair. Uh, but they are also easier to work with in many respects. And when things go bad, which they always do, they are much more understanding because they've been there before their experience and they can provide insight uh, and, and help guide through whatever we're experiencing, whether it's COVID or, you know, renovations, whatever it is. Awesome. Well, tell me a little bit about your other book because I haven't, it just, it just released and, um, and I saw you like promoting it. And so I Googled like book you wrote and that's where I found the other one, but I haven't dove into this yet, but it, it's got a really awesome topic, uh, you know, title. So tell me about it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, really excited to be releasing this new book. It's called Structuring and Raising Debt and Equity for Real Estate. And I wrote this book as a sequel to the first book. So I'm glad you're reading the first one first and then reading this one. I mean, you're you're in the business, so this is all going to, you know, you'll understand it all and it's not going to change your life most likely. But it is the reason why it builds on the first book is because the first book is all about our underwriting process, how to find a good deal. What, what does a good deal look like? Well, this next book about structuring and raising debt and equity is exactly about that, which is now you've got a good deal in your hands. How do you actually put it together? Right. Because you need to make sure that the debt matches your business plan and matches the deal profile. And then you need to make sure that your equity structure is fair and, and right based on who you're trying to attract and partner with. And then I go into actually how to raise money, whether it be retail investors or institutional investors. And I somehow managed to do it all in about 100 pages again, <laughs> which is uh, which is kind of my forte. That's awesome. Uh, was it was it Mark Twain? He said, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a short letter. It it really is hard yes. to condense it. It's it's and then and Einstein says you don't understand it yourself if you can't explain it simply. So like anybody can ramble on about a topic for four hundred pages. You really have got to have a a good grasp on the subject to really condense it down to that that short of a a book. Yeah, definitely, and that's just my style. I I mean I'm I, I hate fluff. I mean I read a business book a couple of weeks ago. And I finished it and I, I thought, it's, it's a long book. I mean, not, I mean, it's longer than mine, right? <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, this book was almost entirely fluff. There was almost nothing that I got from it. And I was really disappointed. <laughs> and so that is just not my style. And that's hopefully people, you know, see that and appreciate that, which I think they do. A lot of people look at the first book and they view it as a, you know, very dense and a very good guy that they can go back to. It's not just you read through it once and put it away. People tell me that they get stuck or they have an idea or question and they can find that exact part of the book and, and read that again. Awesome. So um, on a more serious note, how did you end up in New York City? So I, my, my first internship in college was as a, as a data analyst in New York. And that was my first experience of New York City. And I spent a summer in New York working and you know, living the life and everything. And I remember my dad called me in the middle of that summer. And he said, you're going to hate what I'm about to say, uh, but it's true. And I said, what? And he said, this is going to be the best summer of your life. This right now is the best summer of your life. And I thought, no way. I'm going to have way better summers. This is, this is only the beginning of my life and everything. And uh, I love that he said that. And I love that he saw that. Uh, but that was probably the best summer of my life. And it was such a great experience getting exposed to New York, kind of being on my own, going to, going to an office every day. 
And so I fell in love with New York and that was made it my goal to uh, move to move to the city regardless of what I was going to do as far as a career or anything. So yeah, the grass is always greener, moved from California to New York. Is and, that where you uh, picked, I don't is see that where you picked up the pinstripe soups? That that screams New York City more than it screams California. Oh yeah, big time, big time. Yeah, I fit in much better here. <laughs> you're you you're one of the the best dressed men in multifamily. You don't see a lot of folks. You stick out because you don't see a lot of folks dressed to the nine at these events. Like like you're always just dressed to the nine. I appreciate that. Yes. Awesome. Well, I want to switch gears because I know I know we're short on time to uh, to our radio round just to ask three little questions that help our, our listeners get to know you a little bit better. So the first one is, what is your favorite book that you didn't write? Because I've had yeah, my favorite book answer their book. Well, we've talked enough about our books, so uh, hopefully that's enough promotion for this episode. But my favorite book is probably Getting More by Professor Stuart Diamond. That is also, it's a long book, but it is no fluff and it's very actionable. So it's not like you're reading things and going, oh, that's interesting. That's inspiring. He's actually talking about getting more as the title of the book implies. And he's a negotiation professor, uh, but not in a way that you'd expect, because when you hear the word negotiation, you think of like interrogation and you think of hostile situations and stuff like that. Right. Exactly. Chris Voss, which his book on negotiation is very good as well. Uh, but getting more is just such a great framework uh, and, and to view life as a negotiation. Everything is a negotiation. Sales is just a, a form of negotiation or the other way around, however you want to look at it. Uh, so so his book really teaches actionable ways to get more about get more what you want, whether asking for a discount at a store or doing a billion dollar deal. It's a, it's a it's a win. As cliche as it sounds, it's a win win framework where. I love like my favorite line. I'm not going to use it for the quote, but my favorite line from him is sits down at the negotiating table and says, all right, I have one non-negotiable in this negotiation. And that is that you get what you want, because if I get you what you want, I'll get what I want. Very cliche, but it's, it's a very good framework. Yeah. No. And, and I want to echo what you said about like how life's a negotiation. I made a reel about selling the other day because a lot of, you know, it gets a lot of slack, but like, you know, you, you sell your wife on marrying you, you sell your three-year-old on eating his green beans. You know what I mean? Like you, you like everything we do is a negotiation is, is some type of persuasion. So it is certainly a skill to hone and, and a craft to master. I, I think Kiyosaki was saying that about it, uh, a, a line in Rich Dad Poor Dad was like some lady wanted to, wanted to write a best-selling book. So he told her to go like, take a, a sales course. She goes, excuse me, I'm an author, not a, I don't want to be a salesperson. He goes, do you want the best written book or do you want the best selling book? Yeah. <laughs> so it's. Yeah. Love that. <laughs> um, what is your favorite quote? Well, the quote that I had in mind, it was uh, the enemy of the great is the good. Yeah. And that is a quote about basically people who have natural people who are naturally good. They may not, be motivated to actually become great. Uh, I think you see a lot of people who kind of struggle with something at first, then they gives them the drive to become great. Uh, so I like that quote a lot. But I also, on the other hand, really do believe in the idea of focusing on your strengths rather than, rather than trying to fix your weaknesses. But I think both quotes are good. Uh, and there's a time for everything. I, I love to 
to delegate. I think delegating is such an important thing to do and to build a team and to outsource your weaknesses and focus on your strengths. Uh, so that's something that I am working on every day. Yeah, I think we all are. What uh, What's your favorite thing to do when you're not working? I'd say I'll, I like to be in the gym. All right, another form of working. I like to do yoga, lift weights, boxing. Uh, I used to uh, I used to play football in high school, and I got recruited uh, for college. And then in college, I decided you know I need to really focus on a career, and football is not my career, so I switched from that. But football at one point was my life, and I think it taught me a ton of really good lessons. So staying in the gym and staying competitive. Uh, really good for me. Yeah, there's and there's so many correlations there. I've always loved hiring athletes because they understand that like like you win the game at practice, right? The conditioning before everybody wakes up that nobody sees is what and it stops you from, you know, shortcuts and cutting corners and because you know the like the work that kind of goes back to like the Carmozy conversation earlier. Like the longer you can put in the work and not see the result and delay that gratification, the bigger the gratification is going to come back. Um, and, and I always have felt like, like there's a strong correlation between health and fitness and, 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 you know, success, financial, you know, and business success, because you just have so much energy, you have so much clarity, you have so much focus, you know, um, on days that I skip my workout, I'm, it's very, very obvious to me that like all my bullshit is eating me alive and distracting me from what I need to be doing. You know what I mean? Um, and I see that with everybody. So that's awesome. Um, how can our listeners find out more about you, get in touch with you, invest with you, buy your books, um, and follow you. So to learn more about what we're doing at Lone Star, you can visit our website, which is lscre.com. That just stands for Lone Star Capital Real Estate. So lscre.com. Also, I've got a fun website for the new book. Uh, it's structuringandraising.com. So that's pretty easy to remember, structuringandraising.com. And that is that is the new book. If anyone's looking to connect with me directly, the best way to do so is to uh, connect with me on LinkedIn and shoot me a message. I post every day on LinkedIn and I'm very active over there. Awesome. Well, Rob, I really enjoyed our meeting. I'm glad that uh, I'm glad I was able to get you on, and I look forward to uh, to hanging out in person. I'm sure at several conferences over the the next few months. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for having me on the show. This episode was brought to you by Crestworth Capital. If you're a busy professional and ready to make passive income from real estate investing, then go to CrestworthCapital.com where you'll be able to download a free copy of our ebook to help you get started today. Until next week, happy investing.